welcome back to Pictorial on Relay FM. I am Quinn Rose, and I didn't go to art school, but I learn about art all the time anyway. And I'm Betty. I also didn't go to art school, but I very much love learning about art anyway as well. I just read a book about art heists. The energy in my brain is wild right now. I'm thriving. (laughs) (laughs) And that has nothing to do with anything. I just really want to recommend the book Portrait of a Thief to everyone. It has nothing to do with today's topic. (laughs) But it does just kind of generally have to do with this podcast. Pretty much, yeah. Anyway, uh, I actually today want to talk about Keith Haring. I I love Keith Haring. I mean, I probably I know like I know some stuff about Keith Haring, but I'm sure you'll tell me a lot more. Um, so I'm I'm very glad we're talking about him today. Yeah, it is actually June, and so I thought it'd be nice to do like we never do. We almost never do things that are topical, but I thought it'd be nice to do kind of like a Pride Month mm-hmm. episode. I guess I don't really even talk about it that much on this show, but I'm very queer. So I thought it'd be very fun to talk about Keith Haring, who is one of the most famous American artists, kind of period, but especially in uh, gay American art history. He's like maybe the most famous artist, uh, which is really, really cool. And you said you you do you are a fan of Haring's work? Yeah, um, I am. And I feel like I don't even know if I can point back to when I first saw his work and because it probably was on somebody's t-shirt but probably the first time I I didn't I didn't know it was Keith Haring and it wasn't until like I got to know him I would be like oh yeah I feel like I've seen that design somewhere or like everywhere yeah I don't know if I have seen Keith Haring works in person that I can think of. Um, but yeah, I have, I, again, I feel like, yeah, he is just so famous. Um, he is just known. <laughs> yes. He just, he's just sort of in the zeitgeist of popular culture, which is actually like a huge sort of theme that I want to talk about today. Um, but I'm going to start with talking a little bit about his biography. I actually did a bunch of my typical research on the line for this, but I also read the Keith Haring journals, which are these his actual journals that he kept between the years of 1977, which was when he's like 17, 18, and 1989, just a few months before his death. And so this book, it's published as a book, and also there'll be a link to the keithherring.tumblr.com, which is the Keith Haring Foundation posted scans, like hundreds and hundreds of pages of scans of his journals that are just like free on tumblr online for anyone to read which is really amazing yeah i didn't realize that was all available online yeah i just learned about that uh, but i also just highly recommend because i'm terrible reading handwriting so i do recommend <laughs> uh, checking the book out of the library if you are interested in keith herring because we're not even going to be able to close to get into like all of his thoughts and all the things that he wrote even specifically just about the art world and the way that money and art intersect and if you are interested in those topics which i assume if you're listening to this right now you are interested in those topics i highly recommend reading this because it was fascinating especially so much that he wrote in the 70s and 80s could have been written now um and would be like a very timely uh, observation which just goes to show how little (laughs) things really have changed i may probably have mentioned this video before on this podcast but i have a video about about pop art in my uh, youtube channel and i actually don't think i mentioned keith herring in that episode and i'm kind of surprised i didn't um but that episode kind of has a little bit uh, or i talk a little bit about kind of the interesting relationship art has with you know the 
commerce world and and art and money and how it's like complicated <laughs> basically um and uh yeah i think keith herring definitely is one of these people who kind of was in that world very much so yeah so Herring was born in Pennsylvania in 1958, and he actually had like a very direct route towards becoming an artist. His father was an amateur cartoonist, and so she, he was exposed to drawing at a very early age and started drawing very young, like as a child, and always showed interest and affinity for it. And then as a teenager, this is going to seem like a wild left field turn, he got really involved with the Jesus movement, <laughs> which is... I cannot possibly begin to get into what the Jesus movement is, but it's a, it was an evangelical Christian movement, mostly on like the West Coast in the 60s. And that's this is where the term Jesus freak comes from. Like, <laughs> And there was a lot going on there. But hard, the, the main things that are relevant to like Keith Haring's history is one, like his roots in Christianity, which you can see even in lots of his later work, even way beyond his Jesus movement years, like he still had a lot of influence from Christianity in different ways. And then, but also part of this is like a strong distrust of like mainstream uh, religious practices and like the mainstream church, which is very interesting. (laughs) So the journals that I read actually start when he's like like I said, 1718, and he's hitchhiking um, across the U.S. And boy, people just did anything back then, huh? Um, <laughs> yeah. There were so many serial killers in the 70s, and people were still out here hitchhiking <laughs> like their life depended on it, and it did. Um, but in 1978, he moves to New York City. He's studying at the School of Visual Arts, um, He meet, and this very quickly is meeting a ton of other prominent artists who would be coming up with him in like this generation of new American artists, including uh, someone who we have talked about before, John michel Basquiat, um, who was one of his good friends. Now that I think of it, I, I did see some Keith Haring works or maybe one or two in in person. And that was at um, the Basquiat show we had at the AGO a number of years ago. Like, I think there was there were some collaborations he did with Basquiat. And I remember seeing some some babies drawn mm. on some stuff. <laughs> yeah, that would totally make sense. Um, there's actually several points in his journals where he references Basquiat as his favorite painter. Oh. Um, like he makes sure to, even in his private journals, like several times clarifies that like he thinks Basquiat is like the best painter working right now, which is really cool. Um, but he pretty quickly developed distinctive style, which is he would go into subways and there would be unused advertising space that was just black. And he would do these white chalk drawings and very quickly developed this sort of distinctive style around his graffiti art and his symbol of the radiant baby, which we'll talk about a little more in a bit. But even if you don't think you know Keith Haring's work, you probably, if you saw it, you'd be like, oh yeah, no, I've seen something about this. Like this style seems familiar to me, even if I wouldn't have been able to place the name of the artist because his work is so widespread and so commercialized. And I don't, even though I almost always mean that word negatively, I don't necessarily mean it negatively here, (laughs) which is another something we'll get into in a minute. But I don't know, how would you describe his style if someone's not looking at it right now? First of all, it really colorful and cartoony, like you mentioned. He his 
dad was a cartoonist and who kind of taught him this or maybe influenced him in this way um like he paints a lot of figures in minimalist ways basically the outline of a person and the head is just a circle and the arms and legs are just very minimal and they're usually like outlined in black strokes and the people are various like bright colors and he has this style where I want to say there's a lot of parallel lines. When there's a figure, there's also a lot of lines along them that that are radiating in the same direction, I guess. Um, and then sometimes it almost looks like a jigsaw puzzle, too, with a lot of his shapes interlocking with each other. I would say like a graffiti style. I don't know if that's a thing <laughs> like because there, yeah there's no one consistent graffiti stuff i would i would also add like it's always two-dimensional like it's it's always two-dimensional shapes and like like you said very cartoony and also if i was going to name a specific thing um if you've ever seen an image of like a big red heart and then two sketches of like never never any facial features always they're always just blank people like you said kind of abstracted human forms with these thick black lines but it's like a big red heart and then t- there are people on either side of it holding it up i feel like that's one of the image like keith herring images that i see the most um just kind of out and about it's so it's just everywhere. That's like, um, it's like the Keith Haring version of the Banksy with the girl with the red balloon. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So he starts developing this style and he gets famous pretty darn quickly. Um, in like the first half of the 80s, he becomes very prominent uh, and he's prominent most often as a graffiti artist. I also want to take a moment here to recognize um, Angel Ortiz, who is known, his like his stage name isn't correct, but like artist's name is LA2. I had never heard of him before, which sucks because <laughs> LA2 was one of Herring's closest collaborators. Um, He was only 15 when they met and Herring was nine years older than him, but they always worked together like as equal artists. Like according to all reports, like Herring had so much respect for him and like paid him fairly for his work and all this stuff. He had a lot of contributions to a lot of like Herring's work and the sort of style that he developed, including what were kind of called the like the fill in squiggles where like as you mentioned between each shape there are lines that are emanating out from the figures and it almost looks like it fits together like a jigsaw puzzle like that distinctive style of the the sort of negative space in between the figures being filled with those squiggles that was developed by LA2 um however LA2 is Puerto Rican and there was pretty much a deliberate campaign to obscure his contributions. Um, After Herring passed away, the Keith Herring Foundation stopped paying LA2 for his work. Um, It was really horrible. And even today, like it persists, so few people have heard of him or know of his contributions to this like incredibly famous and distinctive style and work. But there are people who knew about this and who have worked really hard to try to at least somewhat rectify the problem. I read some reports that like things are still bad between him and the Keith Haring Foundation. Some reports that they have at least started paying him. But it's not a great situation even today. Wow. Yeah, I had never heard of that, and which is a part of the problem. <laughs> exactly. I was reading about this, and I was like, oh, my God. Yeah, because 
it just goes to show even with someone like Herring where his work is so democratized deliberately through a lot of choices that Herring made the contribution of someone who like he considered a well-respected collaborator could be totally erased um, when he wasn't around to advocate for him anymore so just every time I talk about Keith Herring's work just remember that Ortiz was part of it (laughs) but I will continue with Herring's biography now Uh, through like the second half of the 80s as far as I can tell, this man was just creating work at a rate that was absolutely unhinged. <laughs> um, first of all, he uh, he exhibited at the Venice Biennale in 1984. Oh, cool. <laughs> which is very fun. Um, he started getting on the covers of national magazines by 1984 as well. 1984 seemed to be kind of the tipping point of like when he became mega- iconic um, as an artist but even then he was very underrecognized by the mainstream art establishments of the u.s which he alternated between like pretending didn't bother him and also seeming extremely bitter about <laughs> in his journals like specifically the moma wouldn't exhibit him and he was really mad about it but a lot of more mainstream establishments in europe were a lot more uh, welcoming to his work and he spent, it seemed like a, a lot of time, especially in like the second half of the 80s, he spent traveling around Europe doing murals. He did a lot of murals for places like children's hospitals and lots of places for kids. And he often did those like volunteering um, because he absolutely loved kids, spoke often about how people didn't respect kids enough and like understand them. And he uh, was always like doing like every other page in this journal was him and he's like yeah so I did all this work and then all these kids gathered around and then I signed everything they owed and I made drawings for all of them and like he was always constantly for adults too he was always constantly doing autographs giving drawings to people but especially kids like he would detail like yeah there was this one specific kid who came back and watched me paint this mural every day and like he would talk about this kid like he was his best friend because he's just he just thought kids were so great. Oh, that's so nice. Yeah, and and of course, I I think kids definitely would love his work because they're so colorful, but also just fun. Yeah, and another part of it is so easy to emulate. He writes a lot about seeing people where, like, he met some young people who had like basically fake herring posters whatever because they like made their own and he's like I love it perfect you did a great job (laughs) Mm -hmm. I did actually I I remember reading that um well actually I don't know if you're gonna get into this later but um like I think he tried to open a shop in Japan but like it kind of failed because there were just a lot of people selling fakes anyway (laughs) yeah actually I'm just gonna get into that right now (laughs) so in 1986 he opened the pop shop in New York City This was the official physical location for Keith Haring merchandise, um, which actually still existed for a while after his death. It is now closed, but there is still an official pop shop that's an online store. I mean, there's officially licensed Keith Haring merchandise everywhere because (laughs) it just is. But if you're also if you're interested in getting it direct from the source, there is still a store online store. At the time that he opened the shop, he was criticized pretty heavily for commercializing his work. Um, But he uh, interpreted this as democratizing his work. Because as he said, like, 
my art came up through the subways. Like my art has always been able to be visible by anyone. And it and I deliberately want it to be visible to anyone who's walking down the street. And so I want to make this shop where like anyone can buy my work for $5. He did not say this. I'm just sort of paraphrasing what his general thoughts into this and synthesizing it to my own words. But the vibe is basically like, I would rather everyone in the world be able to buy a cheap t-shirt with my art on it than like have my art exhibited in the Metropolitan Museum of Art, you know, because my art belongs to people and art should belong to people. It shouldn't just belong to people in the art establishment. Yeah, it's interesting because I think one thing I do talk about in the pop art episode is that when I worked at the gallery and, you know, we had a bunch of pop art pieces like including Andy Warhol's and things like that and a lot of the question about pop art that comes up with a lot of people is that they're like oh this just looks like a very like generic image that you know from pop culture like and or quote-unquote anyone could make that and also it's it's very easily duplicated and it doesn't even have to be the artists themselves who duplicates it and you know so then a lot of people are like then why is this art and you know obviously anything can be art but the other side of that question is in a way pop art is one of these movements that that made art more accessible to everyone uh, as more so than any other forms of art because it's like it's one thing to be like oh I want everyone to see it at an art gallery but it's another thing for people to be able to for like everyday average people to be able to consume it um and i think yeah it's this interesting dynamic where you know people like keith herring and basquiat and a lot of these artists that sort of you know were kind of on the street and before they were famous yeah they were they were just painting graffiti on the street and i feel like people are always going to accuse these artists who become successful of selling out because it's like you know, like at some point that image, I'm just the poor artist who's like painting graffiti is not going to be true anymore. <laughs> so. Yeah, it's interesting because he wrote something about how people accuse him of selling out by doing the pop shop. But if he wanted to make the most amount of money, he would just do a couple of really high end pieces and sell them to collectors. And that would actually be the easiest way to make a lot of money. And it actually reminds me of John Green. <laughs> uh, and stick with me here. Okay. Where John Green talks about he how he's on a mission to make his signature like the least valuable signature <laughs> because he signs every single copy of the English first edition print run of his books. And so that means books with the last couple of books that he's published, books with his signature are more popular like there are more of them than books without his signature. And sometimes if you go on Barnes and Noble, like the signed edition is cheaper than the unsigned edition. <laughs> just sort it sort of just happens that way with like computer algorithms of like different websites and stuff. And so he's like, this is my mission. Uh, <laughs> and that honestly, when I was reading this journal, it kind of reminded me of that when I was reading about Keith Haring, just like doing drawings for just anybody because it, it's so true in a way like he he was like I'm gonna put my art absolutely it's really easy for me to make these simple line drawings simple distinctive style and I'm gonna plaster the world with these and they're not really gonna be worth that much and they really weren't until he died and now some of them have sold for millions of dollars which is interesting because it's sort of it sort of proves that he was right that if he had made them really exclusive in the first place he 
not, obviously not as much because when an artist dies, their uh, work goes up in value at auction, which is very morbid, but that's how it works. Um, but he still probably could have made like a lot more money, at least with a lot less work. Like I'm sure he was making money with this stuff, of course, but he could have put a lot less effort in. <laughs> Yeah, I think with this type of thing is he really did genuinely or like from what I know, he genuinely did seem like the type of person who just wanted art to be accessible. He wanted everyone as much as possible to be able to have access to and enjoy art. And I think, you know, that's that's really nice. And that's what we're about. (laughs) Yeah. The only time this really seemed to be a problem to him is in Japan, as you brought up. So in the last couple of years of his life, um, he spent a lot of time in Japan trying to set up pop shop in Tokyo and it didn't really work that well. He, he just happened to be journaling a lot of this time. And so he went really in depth of like, apparently the opening was not good. Like his boyfriend left Japan without telling him because I got <gasps> that out of a fight. And I was oh like, my God. Oh, Um, But besides that, it just uh, didn't go that well just because there was so much knockoff Keith Haring merchandise that was already in Japan. And there just wasn't as much of a distinction, I guess, for just like the average person in Tokyo to really care that much whether it came from the pop shop official Keith Haring merchandise versus like the knockoff down the street, which like probably is poor quality but it doesn't there's not that much of a distinction and it was already so overrun with his work already that uh it just wasn't a good environment and so i'm not sure exactly when or how the tokyo pop shop closed but it definitely was much less successful than the new york one and then after many years of just creating art and exhibiting as fast and as frequently as he possibly could. On February 16th of 1990, he died of AIDS-related complications um, in his apartment in Greenwich Village in New York City. He was 31 years old. Wow. So Keith Haring died at the exact age I am now. That's sobering, huh? Yeah, that's really sad. It's very, very sad. It's also, I, his life was very tragic in a lot of ways, even besides dying young. Um, A lot of his friends and mentors died before he did, even though he died at the age of 31. Um, Basquiat died very young. Uh, Andy Warhol was older than him and was a close mentor of his, but also like died another one of his closest mentors died right at the time around the time that Andy Warhol died and he was very severely impacted by them both passing away especially so close together his closest friend who he was he was the godfather of this man's child um died in a car accident uh only I believe a year before Herring died it's just really really lots of sad things lots of death in his life and also of course he was a gay man in the 1980s and so he wrote a lot about AIDS and HIV and he wrote a lot about knowing that he was going to die young in 1987 uh, a year before he would be diagnosed with AIDS and less than three years before he would die He wrote, I don't know if I have five months or five years, but I know my days are numbered. Yeah, I just don't even know what to say like to that. 
there was such a unique tragedy in his life of being surrounded by people dying young, knowing with almost complete certainty that he was going to die young and not knowing when. And then this manifested in a absolute obsession with creating art and with creating an artistic legacy as quickly and as prolifically as he could. Like he spent the decade before he died traveling around the world and creating art at a pace that would be unthinkable for most people because he knew that he wasn't going to have a whole lifetime to do it. Yeah, I mean, and I do actually, I think it's still, it's really great that his works, like even after this realization, you know, that he he was going to die relatively young and that he didn't have a lot of time left, like his work, it seems like it continued to be like very colorful and bright and like just happy and upbeat is the what I get from his work like I feel like Keith Haring's works is probably some of the most like positive feeling works of like any artist that I can think of yeah I think part of that comes down to the enduring symbol of the radiant baby which I alluded to earlier this was basically his tag her signature um and it was just an outline of like a baby uh, crawling on their hands and knees, and then there were lines that emanated out from them. Get it? It's radiant. <laughs> um, and this basically was because I talked about before. You know, he was he was he revered children so much and like valued children so much. And also, there's definitely I feel like a little bit of that Christian influence in this here, and the idea of you know the baby Jesus um, is a very strong symbol in Christianity, and that comes there. But yeah, even though a lot of his work. It feels like most of his work, or at least most of his most enduring work, is either the deeply political, a distraught messaging, or all of the work that he did centered around children and innocence and youth. That's like all summed up by this radiant baby symbol. Mm-hmm. <laughs> the, the the duality of man. <laughs> yeah. And is it so think you mentioned that it's like his signature like did he actually use like or consistently used a baby to like for it to be like his actual signature like to sign works i'm not sure about that but he used it as his graffiti tag um oh, from very right. early okay, in his sense. in his career as a graffiti artist and yes i'm sorry to <laughs> kind of have to lead this episode into a very dark place but Unfortunately, his life led to a very dark place because he not only died young, he died of a plague that was left to afflict people with no help or acknowledgement for many years. Um, And it is deeply political. There are so many horrific crimes that the U.S. government has to answer for, but this is one of them, and it killed a whole generation. Um, and so now I would like to direct everybody's attention to Keith Haring's design on <laughs> the AIDS ec- epidemic. Um, no, but this is, if you would like to check out the link for the Ignorance Equals Fear artwork. I am looking at a um, an artwork that has the kind of symbolic two-dimensional uh, figures. Uh, there's three figures uh, in the middle. They're in uh, yellow outlined in the black um, outline stroke and 
They're on an orange background with these blue banners at the top and bottom. And the uh, figures have these like kind of radiating lines, but they're they're all they all have their hands on their head um and they seem to be really stressed out or fearful there's x's on their chests and the top says ignorance equals fear and the bottom says silence equals death pink triangle fight aids act up so this poster is playing on the idea of see no evil hear no evils speak no evil but condemning the deliberate ignorance of what people were doing um, in the 80s of refusing to see or hear or speak about AIDS. Um, and that's why we get ignorance equals fear, silence equals death. This was painted in 1989, which means it would have been after Herring was diagnosed with AIDS himself. This certainly was not the beginning of his AIDS activism, but this is one of the most iconic images that he ever made about AIDS. Um, this is one of the most enduring examples of what I meant for his more serious side of his work. Yeah, I certainly think it's um it is very direct and and powerful. And of and again like his iconic like very intense colors. It's it really it makes you pay attention to this message. Oh, and another connection to the Venice Biennale episode, you spoke about a work, a controversial work that was done by the artist collective Grand Fury who also created the Silence Equals Death a pink triangle poster, which um, became so prolific um, as a symbol of AIDS activism that Herring has also used it here. So that is leading back to that work. Podcast crossovers <laughs> or callbacks. <laughs> yeah. We're creating a whole web of, <laughs> of artworks. And then before we get to the conclusion section of the episode, I want to show you one more artwork here. Um, and this is Crack is Whack. Talk about slogans. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Um, so it looks to be a, a drawing that's on a wall. Uh, it's very big. Um, it's the uh, background is completely red, and the drawing is in like black strokes. And it says very big. Crack is. It actually kind of looks like it says crack whack with is on top, but. Yeah, <laughs> crack is whack. Um, and it says NYC 1986 on the top corner, and the bottom seems to be a bunch of people, a bunch of the figures. They're like overlapping each other and on top of each other. I think one has like a dollar bill or something, and then there's a there's like a skull or a very abstract skull underneath the crack word. So presumably this is about crack, the drug, and how it is quite whack. The artwork that you just described is actually the second version of this mural, um, and it is the one that like currently exists. Uh, the original version was done in New York City in 1986. So this is well into Herring being an incredibly famous international artist, right? Um, but he was still into graffiti and he still he still sometimes would just go do murals where he did not have permission to do murals, including this one. He did not have permission for this. This was not a commissioned mural. Um, he did it on the wall of an abandoned handball court and he was arrested for vandalism. And the, the 
New York City police was like, you are going to jail. And then there was, but there was so much media coverage of it that he ended up pleading guilty to a reduced charge and just paying a fine. And then it was painted over. But then the actual, like the parks department painted over it, but then they commissioned him to to paint a new mural (laughs) and actually gave him full permission. Um, And he repainted the original site. (laughs) Yeah, this this is very similar to another work uh, in Toronto. Um, it's th- this also this really famous graffiti piece. There's a tunnel that you can see off of one of the highways that was just like this regular gray tunnel. And an artist named B.C. Johnson in the 70s uh, painted just a big rainbow on it. Um, and again, it's it's in it, it's it's north of like our um, LGBTQ village, so a lot of people like love this rainbow but anyway it was illegal and the artist i think was also arrested don't think he was charged um but again it was painted over or i think it it was like destroyed or or came off over time and he was also commissioned like decades later to come back and repaint it (laughs) wow well i'm glad he got commissioned later this was a much faster turnaround yeah Yeah, that's the thing i think bc johnson it took it took like something like 20 years for them to be like hey you know the thing we arrested you for like a long time ago well those were different people so why don't you come back and fix this (laughs) (laughs) this obviously is another deeply political piece of art um the 80s as well as being the worst time in the aids epidemic in the u.s also a terrible horrific time for the crack epidemic epidemic in the u.s um but instead of the government ignoring it completely they decided to uh, go to war against low-income communities over it and just make everything horrifically worse we cannot get into the drug policy of the u.s but (laughs) suffice it to say herring had some people who were close in his life who were affected by crack cocaine and he saw the negative effects of it. And he was also very frustrated by the government's failure to do anything actually effective um, in combating the spread of crack cocaine. And so, you know, this was his, this was a statement that he made about it. Crack is whack. You're not wrong. (laughs) I think, yeah, similar, similar to the, the other one um, about AIDS. um, This is very direct and overt and and I you know what I think in a way you kind of have to be because in both cases he's calling out that there is an epidemic that the government pretty much is just ignoring and and turning a blind eye to and and, or making it worse and if you you don't directly say this is a problem like people are not gonna know that it's a problem (laughs) yeah of all of the things that Herring's work is subtle is not one of them it is all we keep coming back to the idea of it being very cartoony it is so cartoony and it also is so direct every time he uses words in his work it is extremely clear what he means um and he is not going to let something get misinterpreted i mean i think this almost goes back to what he's talking about like the idea of elitism in art spaces where he's like you don't have to be you don't have to have studied art history for 20 years to understand my work i'm telling you what i'm saying and i it's you're you're gonna understand it (laughs) yeah and and i think that just that's a part of his push for for wanting art to be accessible to as many people as possible 
There is so much more I feel like I could say about Herring. Once again, I would like to recommend his book to anyone who is interested in him because I learned so much. I didn't even begin to get into like, he was so interested in hieroglyphics and it really, the idea of like iconography in language and images were really interconnected for him, which I think explains a lot about his personal style. And also he had so many interesting thoughts about technology and the way that like technology was going to affect people in art, which is more true today than it ever was. Like, I feel like he really saw the writing on the wall there in an interesting way. But the time has come for this episode to come to an end. So I would just like to end this with a beautiful quote that I really loved from his journal. And that is, Art is for everybody. To think that they, the public, do not appreciate art because they don't understand it, and to continue to make art that they don't understand and therefore become alienated from, may mean that the artist is the one who doesn't understand or appreciate art and is thriving in this self-proclaimed knowledge of art that is actually BS. Love it. (laughs) I love that. He said, oh, people don't understand your art because you're bad at it? Is that why? (laughs) burn <laughs> yeah what have, what have we learned today betty we should start t- <laughs> let's t- <laughs> this, this is, is like a- is this like a children's cartoon what did we learn from this episode we should start doing wrap-ups we should start doing what have we learned today what was your favorite thing you learned today in class <laughs> yeah i learned that angel ortiz or la2 or is someone who should should be known and should be respected and and paid and that is a thing that i think i will uh try to learn more about i actually think that is the perfect place to leave this episode of reminding us of the contributions of angel ortiz who was erased and that sucks and i hope that everybody learned some fun things on today's episode of pictorial (laughs) i've decided to host this like a children's show now (laughs) in in the spirit of keith herring this episode has become a children's cartoon I think you're all radiant babies. (laughs) You could find our show notes at relay.fm slash pictorial, or you can follow us on Twitter or Instagram at pictorialpod. You can also follow me on Instagram at aspiringrobotfm, and also I'm active on TikTok now for some reason, also at aspiringrobotfm. And also you can find me on Twitter or Instagram at ArticulationsV. And I am also on YouTube as Articulations because I am old and not with the TikTok crowd yet. (laughs) And speaking of YouTube, we also have a YouTube channel for Pictorial Podcast where we will upload video versions of our audio episodes uh, at some point when I get to it. (laughs) And um, so for this episode, when it comes out, uh, you will see some very colorful babies and and other things. Thanks for listening, art enthusiasts. There are people in my hallway. I'm talking so loudly about crack. (laughs) 